The Old Testament reading is from Lamentations, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. We found on page 792. Lamentations, chapter 1. How lonely lies Jerusalem, once so full of people. Once honoured by the world, she is now like a widow. The noblest of cities has fallen into slavery. All night long, she cries, tears run down her cheeks. Of all her former friends, not one is left to comfort her. Her allies have betrayed her, and all are now against her. Judah's people are helpless slaves, forced away from home. They live in other lands, with no place to call their own, surrounded by enemies, with no way to escape. No one comes to the temple now to worship on the holy days. The girls who sang there suffer, and the priests can only groan. The city gates stand empty, and Zion is in agony. Her enemies succeeded. They hold her in their power. The Lord has made her suffer for all her many sins. Her children have been captured and taken away. The splendor of Jerusalem is a thing of the past. Her leaders are like deer that are weak from hunger, whose strength is almost gone as they flee from the hunters. A lonely ruin now, Jerusalem recalls her ancient splendor. When she fell to the enemy, there was no one to help her. Her conquerors laughed at her downfall. Her honor is gone. She is naked and held in contempt. She groans and hides her face in shame. Jerusalem made herself filthy with terrible sin. This is the word of the Lord. If you'd like to follow the second reading, which is quite a long one, so you may wish to, it can be found on page 129 of the New Testament section of the Pew Bible. It is from John, chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Jesus heals a man born blind. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind. His disciples asked him, Teacher, whose sin caused him to be born blind? Was it his own or his parents' sin? Jesus answered, His blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sins. He is blind so that God's power might be seen at work in him. As long as as it is day, we must keep on doing the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light for the world. After he said this, Jesus spat on the ground and made some mud with the spittle. He rubbed the mud on the man's eyes and said, Go and wash your face in the pool of Siloam. This name means sent. So the man went, washed his face, and came back seeing. His neighbours then, and the people who had seen him begging before this, asked, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? 
Some said, he is the one. But others said, no, he isn't. He just looks like him. So the man himself said, I am the man. How is it that you can now see? They asked him. He answered, the man called Jesus made some mud, rubbed it on my eyes and told me to go to Siloam and wash my face. So I went and as soon as I washed, I could see. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he answered. Then they took to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. The day that Jesus made the mud and cured him of his blindness was a Sabbath. The Pharisees then asked the man again how he had received his sight. He told them, he put some mud on my eyes. I washed my face and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, the man who did this cannot be from God, for he does not obey the Sabbath law. Others, however, said, how could a man who is a sinner perform such miracles as these? And there was a division among them. So the Pharisees asked the man once more, you say he cured you of your blindness. Well, what do you say about him? He is a prophet, the man answered. The Jewish authorities, however, were not willing to believe that he had been blind and could now see until they called his parents and asked them, Is this your son? You say that he was born blind. How is it then that he can now see? His parents answered, We know that he is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But we do not know how it is that he is now able to see, nor do we know who cured him of his blindness. Ask him. He is old enough, and he can answer for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, who had already agreed that anyone who said he believed that Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That is why his parents said, He is old enough, ask him. A second time they called back the man who had been born blind and said to him, Promise before God that you will tell the truth. We know that this man who cured you is a sinner. I do not know if he is a sinner or not, the man replied. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. What did he do to you, they asked. How did he cure you of your blindness? I have already told you, he answered, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Maybe you too would like to be his disciples. They cursed him and said, You are that fellow's disciple. But we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for that fellow, however, we do not even know where he comes from. The man answered, What a strange thing that is. You do not know where he comes from, but he cured me of my blindness. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He does listen to people who respect him and do what he wants them to do. Since the beginning of the world... Nobody has ever heard of anyone giving sight to a person born blind. Unless this man came from God, he would not be able to do a thing. They answered, you were born and brought up in sin, and you are trying to teach us. And they expelled him from the synagogue. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked him, do you believe in the son of man? The man answered, tell me who he is, sir. so that I can believe in him. Jesus said to him, 
You have already seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you now. I believe, Lord, the man said, and knelt down before Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. God, our Creator, who in the beginning commanded the light to shine out of darkness, we pray that the light of the glorious gospel of Christ may dispel the darkness of ignorance and unbelief, shine into the hearts of all your people, and reveal the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So here's the scene. We're at the sixth of seven signs that there are in John's Gospel. If you've been with us through any of these Sundays through Epiphany, you'll know that we've been looking at each of these, or some of these signs. And that these signs are hugely important in John's Gospel. And we know that these signs weren't the only signs that Jesus did. We know that these seven weren't the only signs. The reason why we know that is that if you've got your Bibles open, which I hope you all have, turn with me to page 145 in the New Testament, and you'll find something. This is really, really important. This is, if you like, if you like, John 101. In other words, if you want to understand what John's Gospel is all about and why he wrote it, this is the reason that he gives. And the Good News Bible is so helpful today in that particular understanding because it puts as a big headline, doesn't it? The purpose of this book. This is the reason why John wrote his biography of Jesus' life. This is why he framed it in this order. And he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs. He did more than the seven. In the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these signs are written that you might believe. In other words, that you might go and explore them. That you might go and examine them. That you might go and test them out. And see and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The special one, the son of God. And that by believing in him, you may have this this precious thing. This precious thing that John calls here, life in his name. And John imparts structures, all that he writes, around these seven signs. I told you if you were here last week that when I was on a recent continuous ministry development day in Canterbury... That, that was being led by one of the leading New Testament scholars of the past 50 years, a man called James Dunn. He said this about the signs. It's not so much that the signs are significant, but that they are significant. And by that, what he meant was this. And like what we see today in this one. You see, Jesus perform a sign, and then what happens is that there's a lengthy discourse about the sign. And the whole idea behind the lengthy discourse is it's meant to bring light. It's meant to shed light. It's meant to reveal more about the sign 
and who therefore Jesus is. And we have the perfect example of John 20 verses 30 and 31 played out in this sixth sign. Because this man, through this story, moves from physical blindness to sight. And he moves from spiritual blindness to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and has life in his name. And as we look at this story now on page 129, what we see is this sixth sign. It's played out over six scenes. Did you notice this, how it moved back and forth? Here's scene one, it's page, it's verses one to seven. I've called it the one sent. Sends the blind man to the place called sent. The one sent sends the blind man to the place called sent. And it all begins, doesn't it? It all begins by the disciples going down a blind alley because of a false assumption they make. Funny when that happens in life, isn't it? That we make a, a false assumption that it leads us down a, a blind alley. Because Jesus and his disciples, they're just walking along and they see this blind beggar. They're walking down the streets of Jerusalem and they see this man born blind. And it leads the disciples to make this false assumption that all suffering is caused by sin. Friends, the world is far more complicated and far more darker than that. It was a common view of the day. It wasn't just prevalent within the disciples. For as we see in verse 34 and later in this story, it was also prevalent amongst the, amongst the Pharisees as well. But their false assumption leads to them just going down this blind alley and they end up focusing upon something that is still endemic within our culture today, isn't it? Namely that we look for a scapegoat. So that when something goes wrong in our life, or in the world. We go looking to try and find someone to blame. But as we should know. The crucial question when looking at these difficult situations. When looking at the, how difficult circumstances in our own life. Not to go looking for a scapegoat. It's not even to go and ask the question why God. The question as we see in verse 3 of this passage is to say. What next? What next? In other words, how do we bring glory to God through what has happened? In my difficulty, how might the works of God be accomplished? And that brings us to this, this old brief exchange, isn't it, between Jesus and the man born blind. In fact, we probably remember Jesus' actions more than the words he says, because what does he do? He, he kind of so like spits on the ground, doesn't he? And then he kind of gets his hand and he kind of mixes his saliva with the, with the dirt on the ground and the dust on the ground. And he makes mud pies, doesn't he? Ever made mud pies with your kids? Of your grandkids? That's what Jesus is doing here, isn't he? And then he gets, gets these mud pies, doesn't he? And he splats them on this man's face, kind of like in all the places where a mud pack doesn't go, doesn't he? And he just Flats them on this man's eyes. Lovely picture, eh? And then what does Jesus do next? If you look at it. He tells the blind man 
to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash the mud off his eyes. Jesus doesn't make any promise to the man, does he? He doesn't make any promise to the man that if he washes his hands, he'll be, if he washes his eyes, he'll be healed. Neither does Jesus go with him. He just tells him to go and wash. And so the blind man goes and he washes and he sees. And so imagine that scene. As this blind man can now see. I wonder how easy it was for him to get home, eh? Because he's been led all that time. He probably had worked most of the journey out even though he was blind. But now all those familiar sounds and those familiar smells. He can now see. And so we enter scene two. I called it seeing isn't believing. Because when the man gets home, it's clear that his neighbours are in their own fog of uncertainty, aren't they? Even though he looks the same blind beggar, and some are convinced, most of them aren't. And even the the man's own testimony doesn't move the sceptics, does it? Because the only explanation that he can give for what's happened to him is to say, well, it was this man, this man called Jesus. That's all Jesus is, just a man. And as for, for Jesus, he doesn't know why he did it or how he did it or where he is. And so scene two quickly moves into scene three. Maybe you've been in that same position. Where you can't explain what's happened for good in your life. Or when people say to you, hey, your life's a bit different now. And the only explanations you can give, well, it's because of, because of Jesus. And so we move into scene three. That I've called blind spots. Part one, if you like. Because the man born blind, he's brought before the religious leaders, isn't he, in verse 13, to explain how Jesus has healed him. But they're kind of going to reject the blindingly obvious because they can't get beyond their own blind spots of how Jesus in their eyes has broken the Sabbath. It appears like God can do anything, can't he? Except on the Sabbath. That's what's going on here. You see, in the Jewish religion, there's a book called the Mishnah. If you've never heard of the Mishnah, this is what it is. What it did was it collected all the oral traditions that the rabbis had taught through the centuries and it put them all into one book. If in the Jewish religion, it's second only to the Old Testament in terms of authority. It's a hugely important book. And remember, before they had scrolls and before they could write things down, the Jewish religion was passed down orally. That's how it was passed down. And the Mishnah collected all these phrases and sayings together. And in a section called Shabbat 7.2, there are all of 39 classes of work forbidden on the Sabbath, one of which is kneading dough. In essence, using your hands like you'd make bread, which is in effect what Jesus was doing when he was mixing his hands in the clay. And as a result, what happens when the man born blind explains what Jesus told him? Because it happened on a Sabbath, the Pharisees are left in turmoil, aren't they? They can't make their mind up 
about Jesus. Confusion kind of reigns in their heart. Someone from God breaking the Sabbath or someone who's a sinner doing only what God can do. So they asked the man born blind, he opened your eyes, who do you say Jesus is? And the response from the man is now to call Jesus what? He calls him now a prophet. He's coming closer to the light. And so we move to scene four in verse 18. I've called it blinded by fear. Because it's here we meet the man's parents. It got me thinking as I was reading this passage over and again. Was this the first time, I wonder? Was this the first time that the blind man had ever seen his parents? I wonder what he's feeling now. Well, we can kind of see what his, his parents want to do, don't we? They know that it's, he's their son. They know he was born blind. But what and how it happened? Well, they don't know how that occurred. And what's more, they don't want to know, do they? And so out of fear, they crumble, don't they? They devolve their responsibility. And fear does that, doesn't it? In all of our lives. You know, they, they may well have a son with 20-20 vision, but being ostracised, being expelled from the Jewish community and their friends was a step beyond they couldn't see. And so before we know it, scene four becomes scene five, which is blind spots part two. And the man is back on the scene and he's told to denounce Jesus as a fake and a fraud. And this time the response from the man is to call Jesus not God. And he's not sure whether Jesus is a sinner. But he is a miracle maker, isn't he? If we were wondering where John Newton's famous line from Amazing Grace that we'll sing later came from. Here it is. John 9 verse 25. I once was blind, but now I see. And the light in the man's spiritual eyes is getting brighter. The Pharisees, though, as we read... They're getting irritated. And the man born blind is about to irritate them past exasperation. And you can almost sense as you read the particular story now as if he's beginning to enjoy the standoff with them. He may have been blind, but he's quickly become attuned to when the Pharisees don't want to see the truth. And so he throws down the challenge. Up to now it's all been pleasantries, but now it's going to get ugly and the gloves are coming off. I've told you once, you didn't want to hear. Why do you want to hear again unless you want to become one of his followers? And then it gets evil and the slander starts, doesn't it? We don't need to be a follower of this man Jesus. We don't even know where he comes from. We are followers of God through Moses. And as for Jesus... Well, where's he from? The man is astonished. And his response shows that he's getting closer and closer to seeing the light. The thoughts of his are crystallising and he's now convinced that Jesus can't be a sinner and must be from God because it wouldn't be possible for a sinner to just do what Jesus has done in his life. And because who else? Who else has ever opened the eyes of a man born blind. 
You'll find no example in the Old Testament, not even from Moses. But the Pharisees haven't they? They've seen enough. And so the story returns to the conversation at the beginning, but this time more vicious. And their blindness and their prejudice is clear to all to see, and they just throw the man out. So we come to the finale. Short time later, we read that it's Jesus who goes and finds the man, hearing what's happened. I've called scene six, seeing what others don't see. So Jesus asks the man a question. And it moves the man from blindness through sight to belief. Do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Messiah? And the man is kind of not quite sure what Jesus is getting on at first, so he asks for a bit of clarification. And so Jesus gets personal. And he says, do you believe I am the Messiah? And we get this instantaneous and almost instinctive reaction from this man. Lord, I believe. He bows in worship, for that's what the Greek word means here, and trusts in him. And all of a sudden this Fuzzy picture suddenly comes perfectly into focus. He sees God present and at work in his life. And he believed. He sees the light. The light of the world present at the beginning of creation now revealing the knowledge of who God is. And he believed. But what about us? You know, as we reflect on this Story. Those two questions that John posed in his gospel still apply. Here's the first. Why does today's sign? Why does today's sign reveal that the Son of God is Jesus? You know, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, why does this sign convince you? And the reason is because Jesus can do what only God could do. And this is where the discourse follows helps us to see the significance of the sign because one of the characteristics in the Bible of God is that he's all powerful. The technical word we give to that is God is omnipotent. And typically that is shown in the Bible in three ways. That God has the power to change nature. That God has the power to heal. And God has the power to raise the dead. And what we see through these seven signs is we see Jesus doing what only God can do. What was Jesus doing with water into wine? What was Jesus doing as he walked on water? What was Jesus doing? As we saw last week in feeding the 5,000, he was changing the natural order. What does Jesus do as he heals the blind man? What does Jesus do as he heals the official son? What does Jesus do as he heals the man paralysed for 38 years? He's shown the power to heal. And as we'll see next Sunday, what does Jesus have? Even the power to raise someone from the dead. But there's a second question. What is this life in his name that John talks about? What is this life in his name? What is the life in his name that is to be seen in our lives from believing this sixth sign? And once more, if we follow the discourse through, we see this is where it helps us. 
Because, as I said last week, life in his name is obviously a reference to eternal life. Turn with me to page 140, to John chapter 17 and verse 3, because this is where John helpfully defines life. Jesus is praying to his Father in Gethsemane, and he says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. You know, life in his name comes from surrendering your life to Jesus'. It's about being changed by what he did for you and for me on the cross. It's an invitation that cannot be restricted from anyone. And life in his name, or eternal life, doesn't begin after we die. Eternal life begins once we've been changed by the cross. Once we've believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is where the discourse brings out some meanings for us about what it means to live life today. And so I leave you with these three thoughts on this passage. Here's the first. The man born blind saw, but those who could see were blind to the works of God. And it made me think about where am I? Maybe where are we? Blind to what God wants to do in our lives. Where do we have such a fixed view of God, of who he is, of how he works or what he wants to do, that we dismiss what is blindly obvious? If you like, where do we create God in our image and put him in a straitjacket? Or perhaps, where's the character flaw that God wants to transform in our lives? But we don't believe it exists. Could be our, our blindness that's caused by something what we're ignorant towards. Could be something that we're more rebellious towards. Where is the light shining in the darkness? And in the darkness of our lives, we, we don't see it. Some of you came with me a few months ago to the, to the Global Leadership Summit. And you may remember Bill Heibel spoke about the danger of blind spots. He said every leader has, on average, 3.4 blind spots. And we all have them. Every one of us. We all have those weaknesses in our lives, don't we, that we can't see. I have them. You have them. Often I don't see mine. But others do. Life in his name. It's about not being blind to the work of God that he wants to do. In your life. And the question of light is to ask God, God, where are my blind spots? Or to ask the people who we know, where are my blind spots? Perhaps not when we're in a heated argument now. Where are we blind to the works of God? Here's the second thought. The man born blind saw, but the man's parents just devolved their responsibility, didn't they? So where might we be devolving our, our Christian responsibility? Could be that we're devolving it at home. You know, every parent is responsible for their child's spiritual development. It's nobody else's responsibility. 
That's what God lays quite clearly down in the Bible. It could be at work by living some sort of dual or double or inconsistent life. It could be with our friends by going along with the crowds. And you know, often the main reason we devolve our responsibility is because of fear, isn't it? The fear of what others may say. Our parents, our children, our peers. Even the fear of expulsion. For that's what's occurring in their their parents' lives. Life in his name is about having faith, isn't it? It's about having faith as Jesus is the Son of God. And remembering who he is and taking those risks for him. Because that's what faith is all about, isn't it? Faith involves risk. Which therefore at some stage will involve fear. And it's about trusting that God is a good God. Who is completely trustworthy. And working through the fear that comes through faith in Jesus. Where are we blind? Where might we be devolving our responsibility? And here's the third point. I don't know how much you know about the pool of Siloam. I don't know how much you know about this place that where in the waters that this blind man washed. It actually is one of the greatest feats of engineering in the ancient world. It was built by King Hezekiah. And what he did was he built this underground water work system. It began in the Gihon Spring, which is in the Kidron Valley outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And it would go through the walls of Jerusalem and create this reservoir inside the walls of Jerusalem. You can obviously guess why it was there. So it meant that whenever the Israelites were surrounded by their enemies, they still had a water supply. And what they did was they they built this waterwork system. And they built it from both ends, a bit like when they built the Channel Tunnel. And they hoped that it would meet in the middle. That's how they built it. And for centuries, it was lost. Because obviously, as we heard in that reading from Lamentations, Jerusalem kind of got sacked. And what's happened over over the time is they've rebuilt above and above all the ancient rubble. And of course, the other thing about Jerusalem is the Israelites only got the land back in 1967. So for centuries, nobody knew if this place was existing. Until 2004. And they found it. And so when I was in Jerusalem in 2006, I went to the Pool of Siloam. You see, for centuries, everyone was blind to it. They just walked over it. Nobody could see it. Until they found it again. Here's the point. Where do we need to discover something new? Or rediscover something that we've forgotten about the good God we worship in our lives? You see, because kind of like with the pool of Siloam, he waits at the Gion Spring. And he waits reaching out. Waiting for us to reach out from the parched reservoir, from the walls within our lives, to meet him. You see, this is what life in his name is all about. It's about discovering. It's about rediscovering, in an ongoing way, the presence of God in our lives. 
who transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we live as if Jesus was us. That's what it's all about, isn't it? It's a journey of keeping on, discovering and rediscovering who God is, about knowing how good he is towards us and about knowing the presence of him in our lives so that we can testify to Jesus of the difference he's made. Let us pray. The colleague for today says this, God of heaven, you send the gospel to the ends of the earth and your messengers to every nation. So send your Holy Spirit to transform us by the good news of everlasting life. So in the silence now, We just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us about what it is about life in his name that he wants us to take from today. Maybe it is a blind spot. Maybe it is where we've devolved a responsibility. Maybe it is something about discovering something new about how good you are, Lord, or rediscovering something that we've forgotten. In Jesus' name we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord.